a platform for supporting the collective inquiry into deep impact. As a part of the Poetry of Impact, the Journey to Impact podcast brings to life the ebb and flow inherent on the path of impact, illuminating the interior journey of the hearts and minds of today's top leaders in impact. Here, you'll hear the intimate stories of those who push forward to overcome self-limitations and societal barriers, to co-create a world where one day all people and planet can thrive together. This is Gino Borges with the Journey to Impact series. I'm here with Bettina Von Hagen, who is the co-founder and CEO of the EcoTrust Forestry Management, known as EFM, which makes investments and conducts climate-smart forest management, which is focused on natural climate solutions in the Americas. Born and raised in Peru, uh, Bettina now resides in Oregon. She has over 25 years of experience in fund management, impact investments, ecosystem service markets, which I really don't know what that is, so I'll be asking her about that, and commercial lending and forestry. Welcome, Bettina. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. So tell us about your uh, current circumstances considering the uh, coronavirus uh, pandemic and specifically, how are you personally affected and how is EcoTrust professionally affected? Well, uh, you know, uh, I am in, sitting in Portland, Oregon. It is a beautiful, sunny day. I have the great advantage of having a secure home and a lovely family and the ability to go outdoors and um, secure in terms of food. Uh, so I'm feeling very fortunate and very distressed about what's happening in other parts of the world. And I think it's really a moment that's highlighting, you know, all of the things that have been bubbling under the surface around access to water and food security and resource disparity. Um, and so I think it's a, you know, it's a, it's a big moment. I am personally comfortable, but I am uncomfortable <laughs> in that comfort, uh, given where all my um, brothers and sisters in the world are at this time as well. Um, so that's me. In terms of EFM, um, we are in a fortunately pretty good position for the moment. The wonderful and glorious thing about trees and about forests and investing in, in forests is that our forests are currently quite happy. In fact, they're probably um, about as you know happier than usual um, because of you know good air quality. Um, and you know for forests, um, investing in general, um, they are indifferent to political cycles. They're indifferent to economic cycles. Um, as long as there is uh, in natural forest systems, as long as there is water and soil and sunlight and rainfall, um, they, are, they are very happy. And the, the wonderful thing about forests is that, um, you know, unlike other, um, um, unlike agriculture, for example, um, trees can go for long periods of time um, without any need for sort of market access. So as long as you've created a structure, an investment structure um, in which you don't have um, obligatory cash payments, like for example, being over leveraged or just having excessive amounts of leverage, uh, you can survive quite well uh, through economic turn, um, economic turndowns and political cycles and so on. 
So our forests are happy. And secondly, um, forestry is an essential industry since it provides, of course, um, fiber for paper products, which have been much discussed in COVID, um, and also uh, wood products for construction and fuel and a whole bunch of other essential products. So it's an essential industry, and so we are continuing to conduct operations um, during this COVID period. Um, you know, there, there may be longer-term implications, which we can discuss as the economy, um, depending on what happens to the economy. But for now, both, um, both my family and I and the company are surviving this COVID period uh, quite well. How do you stay... Um... So when you say quite well, uh, it's, it's interesting in terms of, um, uh, for sure, it's an essential industry. Um, sort of how are you sort of navigating the practical day-to-day, um, sort of keeping the business alive um, and potentially thriving uh, versus sort of just like this ongoing uncertainty, like there's sort of this immense uncertainty going on and perhaps maybe you have a little different vantage point given that there's sort of a long game from my understanding of what Ecotrust Forestry Management's trying to do. And maybe your vantage point as, as a result of the long game helps you sort of discern things that uh, folks who aren't practicing the long game maybe get caught up a little bit more in the day-to-day circumstances. So I'm just sort of curious on how you're sort of navigating short and long game. Sure. I mean, one of the things, one of the aspects of forests is the ability to store value in place. And, um, you know, so I really have a lot of empathy for um, uh, all of other, other businesses that are dependent upon current sales or that have perishable product uh, or, um, you know, very, very high um, fixed costs. You know, those are very difficult things to navigate. So in, in forestry, you know, one of the aspects of it from an investment perspective is that you have fairly low fixed costs and you have this ability to store value in place. So what that means is our forests, as we speak, are accreting value. They're increasing in value. The trees are getting larger and, um, you know, storing carbon and photosynthesizing and increasing in volume and in value over time. And we can um, monetize that value today um, through timber harvests or through a carbon credit sale or through a conservation easement. And these are some of the ecosystem service sales that you referenced in your introduction. Or we can do that next year, or we can do that in five years. Mm. Uh, And the longer we wait, the more we will have. And so it really is a very advantageous resource um, uh, and an advantageous strategy in times like this, uh, you know, which is why it's considered a great addition to an investment portfolio because of these these sort of low risk and counter cyclical elements um, that forestry has. So the long game is, you know, we we still have, um, you know, the forests are, are increasing in value. Now what's changing is the timing of the cash flows associated with them. And, um, you know that 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 speaks to building a um, a financing structure um, and investor expectations um, that are patient, that anticipate um, these types of cycles, and that are built to withstand them. So um, so that's the long game. Um, 
the the medium game, you know, the short to medium game is that, um, uh, you know, in terms of monetization as a timber product or as a fiber product, you know, that is dependent upon demand. And um, as housing starts decline, uh, lumber prices are affected, and then log prices are affected, and then timberland prices are affected. Um, but, you know, what we do find with forest land is it's very sticky, you know, so um, it, while housing starts might be volatile and lumber follows that and then log prices follow that forest land at the end of that, of that, um, of that chain, uh, you know, tends to be a lot more stable because it's really, it's really looking forward to the next, you know, 50 to 100 years of anticipated cash flows um, as the um, definer of its value. So, um, so there are definitely changes in, in the timing of cash flows that will occur, you know, due to, um, due to market, to changes in market demand. Uh, but if you are built to withstand those and you're built to be able to really enter the markets when it's advantageous um, uh, for you, and you're managing um, the resource when you're managing the forest in a way that creates long-term value and resilience and diversity, um, you know, then, you're, then you can be in reasonably good shape. Hmm. There's a, um, uh, sorry, how, how did you, no, no, I like to little, uh, sort of understand your story in terms of, uh, you know, the inspiration was, was forest sort of a happenstance for you and you were just, you were interested as an, as an activist in social and natural, uh, affairs or, or was there a background in Peru with forest and passion, uh, for land management that it began a long time ago? Yeah, so I think the forest story, the forest specific story really began in Oregon, but my obsession with um, and love and passion for biodiversity and for natural systems and the appreciation for the complexity of how ecosystems function and um, respect for all of the parts, I think was um, was inspired by when I was 13, uh, fortunate enough to go spend some time in the Galapagos. Um, and which was just, you know, the Galapagos is mind blowing for many people, <laughs> all people in a number of different respects, but to, um, to really, um, be hit that squarely as you are in the Galapagos with, um, the wonders of evolution and natural selection, um, the individual strategies that are forged, the uniqueness of it, the complexity of ecosystems, the fragility and resilience of ecosystems, um, is um, you know an incredible gift, and I went back there um, when I was 20 and spent a year um, in the Galapagos, and sort of reinforcing that love and passion. And then I got um, then I I wandered the world a little bit, and I got an MBA from the University of Chicago, and then I went into banking and came to Oregon as a young banker, and had a number of forest product industry forest product companies in my in my lending portfolio. I was a commercial lender. And it was the time in um, Oregon um, known as the Timber Wars, which everyone in the West will, will recognize as a big event. And the, the Timber Wars were a national debate um, over the, how federal forests, how national forests should be managed. Um, up to that point, there had been a, um, a very strong emphasis on timber production uh, in national forests. And at the same time, 
environmental community was sort of comparing that rate of uh, harvest with what was happening in the Amazon, uh, which was, of course, at that time capturing, you know, global attention. And um, the, you know, the result of, um, of that combined with, the result of that public attention combined with some real uh, impacts on forest-dependent species like the northern spotted owl and the marble mullet and Pacific salmon and other species, you know, caused a summit to occur, um, which is called the Northwest Forest Plan or the Clinton Forest Plan. Um, which changed the way that for federal forests are managed. And as you can imagine, um, this big uh, change in forest management at, on the national forest had big implications for the region in terms of employment and mills and public opinion and a divide between urban and rural communities um, and divide between industry and the environmental community and so on. And I was sort of in the middle of all of that um, as a banker um, in a, an Oregon-based bank, suddenly recognizing that I was the only person I could identify in the bank that had a different opinion um, than my colleagues on sort of what should go, um, you know, what should happen uh, in terms of uh, the forest product industry. Mm-hmm. And the, 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 the battle at that time was, was sort of um, framed as, Harvesting as usual because it will protect jobs and industry versus no harvest. And the voice that or the perspective that I had and felt lonely in is, isn't there, you know, another way forward in which we really think about um, the long-term health of the forest, where we think about, um, you know, timber is an important, um, important human need and, and commodity. Um, but also consider uh, carbon storage, and you know, I don't know if we had those carbon storage words at that point. So it's probably more biodiversity and water focused. I mean, isn't there just another way? Um, and I think that part of the influence was also that being in banking, I really, and I think you and I share this, you know, had a real admiration for business and entrepreneurship and um, the the types of energy that can be marshaled by entrepreneurs um, and the, the magic of combining um, entrepreneurship, capital, access to capital, and a good idea and a good strategy um, around forests or around any other kind of business that on the one hand sort of provides the things that we need um, as human societies, but on the other hand, you know, protect those um, not only for future <laughs> for future human societies, but also for all of the other denizens of the natural world that are part of our, you know, complex and wonderful and amazing ecosystem. So I started to feel very um, different (laughs) and isolated from my colleagues um, in terms of my perspective on on the timber war. And then it it grew into a larger perspective about um, business as well. And right around that time, I had one of my favorite clients come to me that had, uh, that ran a recycled um, steel mill and that had used up to that point, hundred uh, percent recycled um, steel. And they came to me wanting a loan to build a hot briquetted iron facility in the Venezuelan rainforest. Um, and that brought that home even more sharply uh, in terms of 
the impact that lenders and providers of capital had on natural resource decisions in faraway places. So all of those things together combined to um, to cause me to sort of have it, you know, sort of a moment of of um, I guess of of um, thought and crisis about how I could move forward with this understanding that I had in the environment that I was in. And so, um, you know, there's the adage, um, vote with your voice, vote with your feet. Um, so yeah. in that in that order. So voting with your voice for me meant going to the chairman of the bank, sharing my concerns. Um, basically, what I was asking him to do was to incorporate environmental and social decision making into our loan making um, to consider the environmental and social dimensions of the loans that we were making. And um, strangely, he didn't laugh me out of the room. I did create an environmental task force in the bank. I gave it my all for a year or two. Um, realized that it was probably not the right venue at that time yeah. um, for deep for deep change <laughs> 25 years ago um, and um, had the incredible good fortune of meeting Spencer Beebe who um, had just started an organization called EcoTrust uh, which was very much focused on how do we bring private market solutions and entrepreneurial energy uh, and other resources to um, create the kind of change we want to see in the world um, from the perspective of environmental and, um, and social um, objectives. So how do we do forestry in a way um, that on the one hand is financially viable, uh, but on the other hand, you know, also provides communities with the jobs and resources they need, but in the context of a forest that is resilient and enduring and intact and functioning and fully functioning, you know, with that same perspective brought to, you know, whatever resource or, or business endeavor you consider. And so I finally found an ally in the world. Now there's lots of them, but back then it was hard to find. Um, and I joined EcoTrust, um, which is a most wonderful nonprofit. And, um, but, but both Spencer and I had this vision of how could forestry be done differently um, from the very beginning. And after about 10 years, we were able to create um, EcoTrust Forest Management or EFM, uh, which has now been just now a, um, you know, a, a for-profit investment management firm um, with diverse ownership. Um, and, um, so that was really the, that was really the start of it was this fundamental recognition that there is a different way of doing business, um, that uses all the good that comes from, um, from the private sector in terms of the ability to work rapidly, the ability to innovate, the ability to accumulate resources, um, but, but using, deploying those resources for the way that I think business be was always designed to be um, the purpose of it was designed for which is to um, to enhance social well-being and obviously that includes um, protecting restoring and investing in the resources upon which we depend so yeah so that was the that was the path from um, from banking to to where I am uh, to where I am today 
That's a beautiful story in terms of how um, you got here and you also being at the Nexus. I, I, I definitely remember the, the Clinton Gore um, moment and the Timber Wars. Uh, is that also sort of, was uh, Julia Butterfly associated with also the Timber Wars or is that pre-Timber Wars? It was around the same time, you know, I think that she was very involved in protecting some of the, the last, I mean, people approach this in different ways, um, yeah. you know, very much protecting the last old stands and the last old trees. Um, so yes, no, very, very big fundamental part of that um, was her activism and activism by others like her. So yes, that was all part of the same, which was how should we manage federal forests? Um, and, um, you know, that debate continues <laughs> in different ways today, but I think we have a few more, um, a little bit more information um, than, um, than we had then and a few more options than we had then, including, um, you know, since you mentioned it, the uh, understanding and recognition and paths for monetizing ecosystem services. And so um, mm -hmm. what I mean by that are, you know, ecosystem services are the services and products that are provided by nature generally for free. And so that includes absorbing carbon dioxide. Um, it includes um, capturing, cleansing, and providing water. It includes uh, soil formation and all of those other things that are, you know, the basic ingredients of life, um, which we mostly get for free. And um, mm -hmm. what, uh, what is fundamental here is um, that beginning to place a value on those things, uh, understanding their role and creating mechanisms to invest in them, um, you know, is an important component of protecting and valuing those resources. And so the most, um, you know, the, the largest example right now, or the one that probably people would know the best is actually creating markets for carbon. Um, so carbon would be one of the, those ecosystem services, which is the absorption of carbon dioxide, you know, by by plants and roots and stems, um, and which forests are so integral to. And then the creation of a market um, so that forest owners, landowners, community owners that control their own forests can adopt strategies that maximize um carbon sequestration or protect um, stored carbon and be compensated for that um, as, a, as an alternative um, to harvesting or clearing those forests, which would then release that carbon dioxide um, and would you know, further you know, create a further buildup of greenhouse gases. So that would be an example of an ecosystem service market, but there's others um, in water and in biodiversity um, that exist as well. You guys have a pretty, um, you know, in terms of traditional finance, I mean, you guys put together some pretty creative um, capital stacks with, um, and based on my conversations with um, one of you, one of the members of your team, and from what I know from, um, from you know, about, about reading um, about you guys in terms of how you put your deals together, I'm curious about there, there, there must be a certain amount of inspiration, like inspiration and frustration must tread pretty close together in putting those deals together because inspiration in terms of 
each each situation is probably very unique. The alchemy of each deal, uh, with uh, whether it's on Native American lands or working with a public agency or working with a forestry uh, potential potential seller, and then you have mission aligned investors, and then maybe some of your capitalism mission aligned, and then it's some combination of all of that. Um, sort of curious on that the sort of how you tread the like inspiration creativity and the alchemy and the excitement of sort of like putting the big package together on a particular moment uh to fulfill your mission and then also just dealing with the inevitable um friction that goes with trying to put a lot of things together all at the same time sure um we're very lucky in um in forest land as a strategy because the things that enhance value, the things that enhance financial value are a lot of the same things that enhance ecological value. So storing more carbon uh, means that you have grown more timber generally. And so what I mean by that is that what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Often often in uh, forestry, it's a happy coincidence where um, when you protect biodiversity, uh, protect water, uh, um, expand riparian buffers, protect uh, important ecological um, niches within the forest, um, you also are enhancing the financial value of that forest. And a lot of that rests with the opportunities we have in forestry to, um, to monetize those ecological values. And so we've talked a little bit about carbon credits. Um, the other mechanism is also conservation easements. Um, which is a, um, a permanent commitment to protect certain assets in the forest uh, or to forego development uh, in exchange for a payment. And those payments usually come from federal or state government or potentially other, other resources, other sources as well. Um, so there is this very happy coincidence in forestry where you're not necessarily, um, you know, where Creating financial value is not at odds with creating ecological value, which is not at odds with creating community value in general. So there, there is that. Um, so that doesn't mean that there aren't uh, choices at the margin, but at least you're generally all walking on the same path. So we start with, I think, a basic premise that um, our role is to create permanent ecological and community value. And so when we consider the acquisition of a property, we have a plan for how we're gonna create that value. And then the, um, the financing structures come from that. Um, so, um, you know, that, that value creation, you know, there's, there's financial value creation. And so we have equity investors that participate in that. We are also creating um, jobs uh, and opportunities, particularly for rural residents. And so we have tax credit financing or PRI financing or grant financing that has that as its primary interest. And then we're creating also, you know, enduring ecological value, you know, so that could be carbon storage, it could be biodiversity protection, it could be water protection. And um, we have, you know, carbon credits, conservation easements, um, grants and other mechanisms um, with partners um, that have an interest in that aspect of, of forest investing. So what we try to do is 
um, we always have the, we always have as a strategy that we are taking a piece of forest land that has been, um, as they say, intensively harvested, um, and uh, we we develop a um, a long term restoration plan for that for that property. We call it the desired future condition, um, and then everything else sort of falls comes from that, and so. Um, so it's not so much friction among those things that we experience. Uh, what we experience is the intense desire to have more mechanisms to monetize all the goodness that forests bring, um, more ways to um, monetize all those positive externalities that are produced um, so we can do more of, um, of that acquisition and restoration process. Um, so that is that is more our frustration is just how meager the resources still are for protecting uh, and restoring ecosystems and protecting um, and restoring um, rural communities in need. Um, so I'd say that's where most of our, <laughs> if there's frustration, most of it lies there in just how meager those resources still are, despite the overwhelming recognition of the importance of those things. Yeah. So when you look back at um, your your portfolio of opportunities that uh, you manifested, you and your team and the community, um, or ones that are in, in the pipeline right now, I mean, which which one really exemplifies or is sort of the standard bear for the work that you guys are doing? Like, what example would you point to? It's like, in an ideal world, we would have a thousand versions of this going on. Oh, so hard to choose one. Okay, maybe maybe a couple. Um, so one of the um, one of the ones that I think has given me the most pleasure is um, a property that we purchased um, ten years ago, twelve years ago, uh, in Southern Oregon. Um, it was a pretty beat up property in many ways, but one of the things we really look at is landscape connectivity and the, the larger landscape context for property. So this property um, had been logged hard, um, was coming back in sort of a mixture of hardwoods and conifers, uh, kind of scrappy, um, some invasive species at the edge of it, but it had this incredible creek running through it and it was surrounded by wilderness and national forest. Mm -hmm. um, and in the little creek that ran through it was about 60 to 80% of all of the Chinook spawning in the larger river system. Um, we also knew that it had been um, incredibly important to the Coquel tribe um, that um, have inhabited um, that, that region since time immemorial. And um, we, we purchased it and, um, you know, started the process of, you know, invasive species control and riparian protection and so on. And um, started working after a few years with a Coquel tribe um, that um, was just an in incredible process. Um, you know, we brought elders and the tribe onto the property. And the first time we did that, um, you know, some of the elders recognized plants and began to sort of remember names. And it began a, a, a process of repatriation of that land to the tribe. Um, you know, which they ended up acquiring from us a few years ago. Um, and it was just, you know, 
that that acquisition and that transition to the tribe and their memory of that place um, and their memory of sort of settlements on the banks of um, the river and the creek, um, you know, were one of the probably the happiest moments um, during um, certainly all the time that we've been doing forest work. And it's what really makes us happy is to um, acquire a piece of property that's like many forest properties, sadly, a little bit scrappy, a little overused, um, a little over harvested, um, beginning the process of restoration and then finding its forever home. <laughs> In some cases, we hold properties um, for the long term. Um, ourselves. Uh, in other cases, we look for who we think are sort of the natural owners, what we call sort of the natural owners of the property. Um, and tribes would be at the top of that list, you know, um, helping them repatriate land uh, that was part of their former ancestral lands or former reservation lands um, is incredibly gratifying. The Coquel tribe have just been incredible how they have, um, what they have endured um, the land that has been taken from them, their commitment to staying in place, um, their patience in working through this process, their generosity, their incredible generosity towards the larger community. Um, so they have gone in the last 30 years from being a tribe with basically no land to now owning um, thousands of acres, not just the piece that we sold them, but also um, other, other federal land as well that was granted back to them and creating, you know, health clinics and dental clinics and um, casinos and hotels and resources that are now, um, you know, one of the main economic drivers in the rural county. It's just been, it's just incredible to witness um, that type of a renaissance. The, so the tribal renaissance has been sort of top of the list for me. Um, and so that's both an ecological story and it's really more of a, a cultural and social story. Um, and so there's, there's, there's that one. And there, um, the, other, the other example that we're, we're doing a lot of work on right now is um, we purchased 40,000 acres in um, Northern California, another property that um, had incredible potential, has incredible potential, has an incredible landscape context surrounded by touches three different wilderness areas. It connects the wilderness to the valley bottom, um, which is largely agricultural and ranching, mm -hmm. and um, has um, the highest conifer diversity per acre in the world. Um, and the um, what I think is really remarkable about this property, it's not just the, the, um, the restoration potential that, um, that we get to witness by doing the right things for this property uh, in terms of restoration. Um, the other thing that's really amazing with a property like this, and there's many other examples in our portfolio, is the, um, is the opening, the unleashing of all of the community interest and potential um, when you have an owner like us that wants to cooperate, that wants to restore it, it unleashes this incredible energy and resources. And so, you know, we're participating with dozens of agencies and conservation groups and community groups, um, you know, that all, where we all share the same objective, what you want, what we all want is we want a forest that's intact and functioning and restore in, in, you know, um, being restored and that's providing cold, clean water and um, that is 
increasingly becoming fire res resilient um, and that is providing in the future, that is set up to provide in the future, you know, a, a consistent flow of goods and services. That's what we all want. And I think um, when you see that type of energy being unleashed, it's just so, um, so symbiotic. You know, I think that um, you, you open one door and then somebody else comes in and opens another one and soon there's all these doors open, you know, to, um, uh, to restoration. And the, you know, the state of California has been amazing. You know, one of the things we've been able to participate in in that forest is the um, auction revenues, um, uh, the, the, the revenues that have been collected by the state of California from selling allowances. Um, in the cap for the cap and trade uh, program have created a source of funding for forest restoration and for many other uh, environmental programs throughout the state. Um, so it's been beautiful to be able to participate in that program um, and use that as a source of the uh, of restoration just seems to make everything sort of come full circle. So those are those are just um, two examples. The terrible question you asked me because I feel like I have to choose among choose among all my children. Which is I know. Very I mean I know you're being asked to pick um, I'm your favorite child for sure, huh? Yeah. Uh, well, I want to thank you so much. Uh, we're here with uh, Bettina Von Hagen, the co-founder and CEO of EcoTrust Forestry Management. Bettina, thanks so much for uh, sharing your inspiring vision and how how you got started in the early 19 uh, in the early 1990s in terms of starting off as a conventional banker and then making your way out to Portland and seeing that there had to be a middle way in order to do this versus no, no, um, no cutting or versus, um, or versus cutting it all down. You found a way to sort of manage and finesse and team up with folks that um, found, found a middle way and just seems so relevant for what we're going through today. Um, not just in terms of, ecological resiliency, but I think beneath the surface and beneath your narrative is this um, really a deep desire for connection in terms of community and realizing that that they go both hand in hand. So uh, congratulations to you and on um, softening those silos between, uh, you know, ecology and, and the social world. And so again, thank you so much for um, your inspiring uh, voice and really feel fortunate to have you as part of the Journey to Impact series. Thank you for listening to the Journey to Impact. If you enjoyed this episode, help us spread the word by subscribing to this series on Apple Podcasts and sharing with your friends on your favorite social media platform. For a preview of our previous or upcoming episodes, visit www.poetryofimpact.com.